Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're actually going to do a bit of a response video. A number of you reached out to ask me to talk about this video that was done by Upper Echelon, who is a friend of the channel, has quoted Virtual Legality, linked people to us. We're very thankful for that. But a number of you wanted to know whether his video entitled Are Refund Policies Illegal in the Gaming Industry? Was it all accurate? Now, I will, of course, link that video in the description. It's only about 10 minutes long. You can check it out before you listen to this response if you're so inclined. But the basics here are that Upper Echelon was contacted by some of his patrons, some of his subscribers, about whether or not it was fair that, in the first instance, they played Far Cry 6 for just under three hours. It wasn't working out for them. They had some kind of fault with their system setup, and they couldn't refund it which caused Upper Echelon to look at some refund policies around the industry, particularly Ubisoft, who of course makes Far Cry 6, that says you can only refund if you have not launched a product within 14 days of the original sale. And he noted that that was very similar to Sony's policy through their PlayStation Store that says you have 14 days to request a refund. If you've started to download or stream the content, you will not be eligible. And then they include a little phrase here, unless the content is faulty. And Upper Echelon kind of seizes on that because faulty, while it's a term of art in the law, also has some kind of common parlance understanding. That's why the Sony would include it in this statement here. And he says, hey, if Far Cry 6 doesn't work, if some other game, Cyberpunk, of course, used in the thumbnail, he mentions a game called Raymond Origins, he mentions, also a Ubisoft title. If it's faulty, then it would appear to fall under this particular rubric. And he has a couple of suppositions at the end of his video that I, of course, want to talk about. The first, he suggests the following. He says, video game publishers know that their own refunds are bullshit and they rely on EULA agreements. The A is for agreements, but I do the same thing, so don't worry there. To bully their customers into never pushing the issue. But on many separate occasions, they sell faulty products that should be refundable well and truly beyond their deceptive original legal maneuvers. Now he's calling it deceptive. Maybe I should have highlighted that word here. And the question might well become, is it in fact deceptive? But he also finishes off saying, well, separating from legality, regardless of legality, in a world where video games are incredibly complex and user experience differs so much, the refund policies we see now as an industry standard are very often abusive to customers. Now, a couple of things are worthwhile to note here. Games, software in general, whether it's enterprise software or entertainment software, are incredibly complex. And their interactions with specific pieces of hardware, especially in the PC space where they can be wildly different, are often going to result in a certain amount of complexity. That's why Steam has one of the more generous refund policies. You can play it up to two hours and refund it any time before then. But he also uses a phrase here that's important, calling the refund policies industry standard. And industry standards are going to be a factor in answering this question as well. Finally, he leaves off his video with, are these policies enforceable or legal? He admits he's not a lawyer, and that's an important part of the story. Upper echelon, putting important information out there, asking important questions because I get asked these questions as well, and ultimately says, hey, I'm not a lawyer. If someone's more well-versed in these laws, are these policies enforceable or legal? And here I am. Now let's talk about what he does to arrive at these quotes that suggest pretty strongly that he thinks they are illegal or bare minimum abusive and shouldn't be allowed. He starts out referencing the Federal Trade Commission and their analysis of the Uniform Commercial Code, commonly called the UCC 
in the practice of law. Now, there's a couple of things we have to note about the Uniform Commercial Code before we kind of look at the FTC and what they say and how Upper Echelon arrived at the analysis that he did. First and foremost, and this is the law, folks, the Uniform Commercial Code is not really a code and it's not really uniform. It is commercial. It's about selling things. So they got one right, but this is the way these kinds of things work. Let's look at the Uniform Law Commission. How do they describe it? They say the Uniform Commercial Code is a comprehensive set of laws governing all commercial transactions in the United States. It is not a federal law, but a uniformly adopted state law. Now, the Uniform Law Commission here is gilding its own lily a little bit. So what this means is when we look at things in the Uniform Commercial Code, it's effectively a model, a suggestion of what every given state in the United States should adopt. That said, as you can imagine, not every state liked exactly how the Uniform Commercial Code was written, and so they changed things up on their own, which means every state has a different version of their own Uniform Commercial Code. I'm in Michigan. I practice in Michigan. We have a Michigan Uniform Commercial Code. California has a California Uniform Commercial Code. So that uniform, not doing a lot of work there because there are small differences, and they do matter for questions like this. But let's go back to the Federal Trade Commission, because that's obviously a federal agency. They're talking about the Uniform Commercial Code. And what do they say about the concept of warranties? This is where Upper Echelon kind of hinges his argument, is on what's called the implied warranty of merchantability. The FTC says, implied warranties are unspoken, unwritten promises created by state law that go from you as a seller or merchant to your customers. Now, you could argue the Federal Trade Commission probably shouldn't be making blanket statements about individualized state laws that are going to have small differences that impact this analysis directly. But that's not upper echelon's fault. That's really the Federal Trade Commission's. Now, when they talk about this implied warranty of merchantability, you can see why upper echelon thinks it applies. It says, it is a merchant's basic promise that the goods sold will do what they are supposed to do and that there is nothing significantly wrong with them. In other words, it is an implied promise that the goods are fit to be sold. And the law says that merchants make this promise automatically every time they sell a product they are in a business to sell. None of that is technically wrong. And if that's the only paragraph you read, I can see how you get to arriving at, hey, these are illegal and the video game publishers know their own policies are bullshit. But that's not where this analysis ends. If we keep scrolling down, you'll see the following. If you do not offer a written warranty, which is also a little bit deceptive because even if you do, you can do what's going to come up here. The law in most states allows you to disclaim implied warranties. Disclaim, legal term. I think most of you are probably familiar with it, but it means you can get rid of them. However, says the FTC, and this is an important part of the discussion when we talk about abusiveness, selling without implied warranties may well indicate to potential customers that the product is risky, low quality, damaged, discontinued, whatever, and therefore should be available at a lower price. In order to disclaim implied warranties, you must inform consumers in a conspicuous manner and generally in writing that you will not be responsible if the product malfunctions or is defective. You must specifically indicate you do not warrant merchantability, or you must use a phrase such as with all faults or as is. And now here, again, the Federal Trade Commission is summarizing the concepts in the Uniform Commercial Code. We can go look at that model code and see a section 2-316 called exclusion or modification of warranties. The first thing they say is, hey, if you've got an exclusion, if you've got a warranty, we're going to try to read them so that they both apply. 
Words or conduct relevant to the creation of an express warranty, that's one that's written down, and words or conduct tending to negate or limit warranty shall be construed wherever reasonable as consistent with each other, subject to the below to exclude or modify the implied warranty of merchantability or any part of it, the language must mention merchantability and in case of a writing must be conspicuous and to exclude or modify any implied witness of, of warranty of fitness, the exclusion must be a writing and conspicuous. Language to exclude all implied warranties of fitness is sufficient if it states, for example, that there are no warranties which extend beyond the description on the face hereof. And more importantly, for what we're about to look at, unless the circumstances indicate otherwise, all implied warranties, and there's basically three in the United States, merchantability, title, and fitness for a particular purpose, they can be excluded by expressions like as is, with all faults, or other language, which in common understanding calls the buyer's attention to the exclusion of warranties and makes plain that there is no implied warranty. Now, I've talked about it in virtual legality a lot in the past, but in general, the United States is a jurisdiction in which mostly the government, the law, the various states want to respect the freedom of contract. So the notion here is that, like the FTC said, you can disclaim these kinds of things under these rules, but it would be our expectation that if you do disclaim them, then maybe it costs a little bit less to buy that product because you're not getting any promises from the merchant that what you're receiving is at all merchantable. Now, you might say, well, then why aren't video games priced more cheaply? But the answer to that might well be that they would be $100 if these things couldn't be disclaimed in the United States. That's a different analysis that would, people would have to undertake. But there are answers to the question of, is this just abusive that say, well, if a video game retailer, not just a manufacturer, had to allow for refunds for things like interfacing with your computers at all times, then ultimately they would have to account for that in the price of their product. And essentially you would have to buy this extra warranty. And like all things, if you get something extra that the merchant wasn't otherwise giving you, chances are that's going to cost a little bit more money. Now, as I said, the Uniform Commercial Code is applied at a state level. So I just wanted to bring one up how this looks. Uniform Commercial Code, Michigan, you see here, language to exclude all implied warranties of fitness is sufficient if it states, for example, that there are no warranties which extend beyond the description on the face hereof. And then what we were just looking at, the as-is kind of language is, is reversed a little bit, but has the same concept. Unless the circumstances indicate otherwise, all implied warranties are excluded by expressions like as-is and with all faults. So you know the next step that we're going to take in this video, which is to suggest that upper echelon not really his fault, was looking in the wrong place for what's important about these refund policies. The right place to look is in those end-user license agreements. If we look at Ubisoft's, we see what we would expect to see. Warranty disclaimer. To the fullest extent permissible under applicable law, the product is supplied on an as-is and as-available basis. Those are the magic words we were looking for under the Uniform Commercial Code to suggest that all implied warranties are otherwise disclaimed. They continue even more succinctly. Ubisoft's licensors, channel partners, and associated service providers do not make and hereby disclaim any guarantees, conditions, warranties of any kind, express implied or statutory, or other terms, including a following list that we're particularly concerned about. But this is the blanket umbrella. We're not warranting one piece of this software, including with respect to its conformity, accuracy, currentness, completeness, reliability, or security. It's suitability for a particular use, which is fitness for a particular purpose said another way. 
implied warranties of title or non-infringement, we don't even imply that we can sell it to you. It's market value or your satisfaction. Now, your satisfaction is basically never guaranteed with a consumer good. That's not something that is implied. But Ubisoft wants to make clear, we don't promise you'll like it. Ubisoft does not warrant that the product will be uninterrupted or error-free, that defects will be corrected, or that the product is free of viruses or other harmful components. Hey, did we accidentally include a Trojan horse? Our bad, but we've disclaimed the liability. Now, in that particular instance, they might get into a specific amount of trouble, but you can see that this is what we would expect if the implied warranty of merchantability were not to be applied under the rules, the legality that commercial merchants are allowed to use. They're allowed to disclaim those implied warranties. Now, I bet you can already guess what's in the Sony disclaimer, except as provided herein, the software and all related services are provided as is and to the maximum extent allowable under law, SIE LLC disclaims all warranties of any kind, whether express or implied, including but not limited to any warranties of merchantability, fitness for a particular purpose, and non-infringement. Without limiting the foregoing, SIE LLC does not warrant that operation of the software will be uninterrupted or error-free, that the software will be compatible with any other product, presumably including their PlayStation, or that the software will work properly on all devices. Sony, Ubisoft, everyone in the video game industry and most in the enterprise software industry disclaim everything related to software. Why? Because of that complexity because of the interactions between software and hardware, because the law and precedent is so slow, even in 2021, that we don't actually have a great handle on what including those implied warranties would do to a complex piece of software and the seller, manufacturer, or retailer thereof, you just disclaim it all, which means it's effectively industry practice to do that. And it's industry practice, it's industry standard to accept a certain amount of bugs because of that complexity, that consumers in this field know that there might be an issue. Upper Echelon references Raymond Origins having a bug that potentially kills your save halfway through and how that might be faulty under the rules. And I would suggest that it is in fact not when Ubisoft disclaims all faults, sells it to you as is, it is recoverable and playable without that. And essentially video game consumers are expected to know that that's the state of the industry. Effectively, you can argue, if you're so inclined, that bad acts allow for more bad acts by virtue of this system, but it is in fact the way this works. I pulled up a Jones Day article about the implied warranty of merchantability. Why? Because even if you couldn't disclaim it, and we'll talk about that in just a second, it still has to be applicable. Jones Day describes it as follows. This implied warranty, as its name suggests, promises that the software meets the standards of performance expected by merchants in the trade and customers of merchants in the trade. Again, this implied warranty turns on industry standards and practice. And of course, suppliers can disclaim just as we talked about. So how the industry works and what customers receive and what they're used to is a part of this question. So Upper Echelon also has a section that I didn't make a separate slide for in his video that says, why is it fair to say consumers have to wait to get reviews and see how it goes? And I would argue it's because of the nature of the industry in question and that it's just good business sense. There is, in general, especially when you've got language like this in all the end user license agreements, and people ask how these apply before you buy it. But if you look at the back of a box, you'll see the end user license agreement reference. If you look at the store entry on the PlayStation Store or Steam or anywhere else, you'll see the end user license agreement referenced. 
which is all that needs to happen here. You talk about conspicuousness in this, and that's why you see these kinds of disclaimer sections written in all caps is to provide that conspicuousness to point people to looking at these kinds of questions specifically. And you get into a situation where you say in the United States, basically these are going to be legal. Now, I do want to add one other wrinkle because law is all about wrinkles, and that's the Uniform Commercial Code is neither a code nor is it uniform. And I pulled up an ABA article that talks about limitations on disclaimers. It says the broadest approach is that of nine states, which prohibit the disclaimer of implied warranties in consumer sales. And there is a difference in these states whether the rules apply to manufacturers as well as retailers. So a number of the states in the United States don't allow you to disclaim or change the rules about how you disclaim and how long it lasts. In five other states, disclaimers are heavily restricted but not totally banned. So that's 14 out of 50 states that have different rules on the applicability of disclaimers. But remembering, of course, that it still is an open question whether a warranty of merchantability actually applies in this context because there isn't a promise and there isn't an expectation of a promise that Far Cry 6 will work on your PC system, that there's a sex, effectively a caveat emptor buyer beware concept to buying software to put on your own hardware when all of these purveyors of that software disclaim everything related to it. Now, I do want to leave you off with the notion that the United States is, of course, not the be-all and end-all of the world, though it is one of the biggest markets for video games. And Upper Echelon rightly brings up the case of Australia, which I think is probably quickly becoming known in virtual legality and elsewhere as the place where there are very strong consumer protections. And he points out that Sony lost a lawsuit fine situation from the agency that covers consumer protections in Australia. And if we look at Australia law, I can't claim to be an Australian lawyer, but you see much stronger language here. Since 1 January 2011, the following consumer guarantees on products and services apply. Products must, no exceptions, match descriptions made by the salesperson on packaging and labels and in promotions or advertising. Be fit for the purpose the business told you it would be fit for. Come with full title and ownership. These are rough matches to merchantability and fitness for a particular purpose and title. And so Australia doesn't have the same kind of disclaimer concept and says these never die. These must apply to a piece of software and they're busy enforcing these things against the video game industry. Now there are exceptions to these guarantees which could apply, including an exception if you knew of or were made aware of the faults before you bought the product. And one question as an American lawyer I would have is whether constructive knowledge applies there. If you should have known before you brought the product, if there are 400 reviews of a game that says it's busted, should you have known that before you pay your money? I would argue that you probably should have, but Australia might have a difference of opinion there. So when Upper Echelon asks the question, is this illegal? Is it enforceable? If you're in the United States, if you're in a lot of the kind of UCC adjacent Western countries, you are going to have the answer to this question be, yes, in all likelihood, it's enforceable and legal and that the video game publishers know what they're doing. You'll also see language that I kind of skipped over as I read these sections that talk about the fact that all of this only applies to the maximum extent allowable under law anyway. So at a broader, more platonic answer to the question, they're all legal because by their own language, they say to the extent this would bother you on a statutory basis, it doesn't apply. And that, and that will be applicable to Australia or members of the European Union or whatever other jurisdictions decide that they don't like how this looks. Now, I can certainly understand you come to the end of this video and you say, well, Rick, I don't like how this looks. They should have to give these warranties. 
I don't necessarily disagree with you, except to say it's worth noting that if you do increase potential liability, if you do increase the potential exposure risk for these companies, when we don't really know how that interfaces with American law and the law of certain other jurisdictions, you do have a potential problem with either the release of video games or other enterprise software and the release of funds by these companies. And if you have that issue, you could have an increase in price. You could have a decrease in product availability. And so the question becomes, what's the right balance for that? Are we in a place where most of these games are being released broken? We're not able to properly act against these companies. It's not fair for consumers to have to wait past day one and get reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Or are we in a place where we effectively say, okay, $60, $70, that might be less than the true exposure of putting this product out in the market, but we'd rather have the product. And if we had to increase the price, I'm not very interested in buying those implied warranties in any event. Like every question under the law, there's costs and benefits and analysis to be done in deciding whether the current policies are acceptable for consumer protection and business practices. But as of right now, with the question posed, are these enforceable or legal? I have to answer as an American lawyer in Michigan, in most jurisdictions and at most times, they are most certainly enforceable and legal in the United States. If you enjoy these conversations about the business and law of things like video games and responding, hopefully pleasantly, hopefully constructively to other YouTubers, please consider supporting the channel. We can't do it without patrons and other support like you. We've got other ways to support the channel listed in the description or just subscribing telling your friends that we're here. Every little bit helps and has been helping. You can see here we have 51,000 subscribers as of today. And I want to express my thanks to each and every one of you, including those that aren't on this list that only listen to these podcasts in that podcast format. I am so appreciative. Tomorrow, November 27th, is the third anniversary of virtual legality. We'll be doing a question time as we do for patrons. Please consider popping in because it's going to be fun. I'm going to be in good mood. Michigan and Ohio State will not have played just as of yet. So to pop in 10 a.m. Eastern, November 27th. Now, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.